got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, I'm Rima Rattan. One of Australia's national myths is that we are an egalitarian country where class is of marginal, if any, importance. Yet during election campaigns, policies that attempt to redistribute wealth are often shot down as being part of a class war. And more significantly, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted that maybe we aren't as equal a society as we'd like to imagine. So what does class mean in contemporary Australia? To think this through, I convened a panel with expertise in different aspects of class and inequality. In the order they appear in what follows, they are Elizabeth Humphreys, a political economist at UTS in Sydney, who researches how workers cope with economic and climate change, and particularly how they try to make a better life in difficult circumstances. Emma Dawson, who is the executive director of the Melbourne-based think tank Per Capita, which focuses on the economics and the political and social causes of inequality and Liz Allen, a demographer from ANU whose interest lies in population dynamics and matters of inequality, particularly relating to the socio-economic circumstances of people's birth and how it travels with them through the remainder of their lives. This is an edited version of a much longer conversation that I had the very difficult task of editing down. Who is the working class now in Australia? The working class is the same as it's always been. It's people who have to sell their labour. And there's a lot of differentiation within that. So, you know, we have international students who are working Deliveroo to try and make rent and living doubled up in bedrooms in poor quality housing. We have fly-in, fly-out workers who are on decent wages, but it's time-limited because they might be working in a mining industry that, you know, has to end because of climate change. I'm a well-paid university academic, but 500 people are going to be sacked on my campus in the next two months. It's very differentiated, but we're all in the same position in that I don't have a company that I can draw a wage, <laughs> draw, um, you know, profits but- from. I have to go to work. If I lose my job, I'm in real trouble and I would have to offload my house um, because I couldn't afford the mortgage. And my mortgage is tiny compared to the average in Australia, but we all know what unemployment benefits are. a week, it is nothing. And so all of those people are part of the working class in Australia today. Comes back to how, again, how we define class. And I think, you know, the way that Elizabeth is thinking, it's how I define it too. If you have to sell your labor to survive, then you're working class. Um, You may identify as middle class, you may have very refined tastes and have a job at the moment that's a six figure salary job, but you don't have that security of saying, well, I have an investment property or I have shares that I can draw income from, I can uh, afford to not work for for an extended period of time. We do have a middle class now. There are, you know, there are people that um, have investments and it's not defined by how educated they are or by the nature of work that they do. And so we identify differently across class. So we say, well, there's uh, blue collar workers, for example, are seen as working class. But um, if you're a sole trader, tradesman in Australia now, you're 
probably you could be doing very very well indeed and have two or three investment properties so you're actually somewhat shielded from yeah. the vagaries of selling your labor you do have a mortgage and you don't have any other source of, of capital then yeah you're you're in a much more precarious position and then you have gig economy workers national students young people from very low socioeconomic backgrounds with no family wealth to fall back on who are in really dire circumstances and it's effectively like piecework was um you know people queuing up for that day's job in the in the 1930s during the depression so it's a, it's much more complex than mm. people like to think of it and that, and that idea of your cultural class versus your actual material mm. class so as a demographer i don't so much look at categorizing class in my work but rather use income and wealth to segment the population so that we can, I guess it's just another way of seeing or measuring difference and inequalities. So if we were to look at wealth and income as a measure of where you would fit in the kind of the, the spectrum um, uh, in Australia, if you like. And certainly we're seeing what we've seen most recently is that younger people aren't experiencing the kind of wage increases that we've we've seen historically young people are not accessing the housing market like they have been previously home ownership is down and so we see not only just a function of income uh, and wealth inequality being a problem, but we also see age and generational inequalities that are so deep seated that they are, and COVID is kind of bringing these to the fore so that we can actually see them for the first time, many of us. But they're actually making the difference, the gulf between the haves and the have nots greater. So I think when we talk about class, we're doing a disservice by seeking to purely classify on kind of perhaps an, an outdated notion of, of what it is to belong to a particular group rather than how is it that we survive daily. Mm. And, and I think that um, for me, that, that measure of wealth, you know, the, the recent ACOS UNSW report was horrifying. If we look at that segmentation of the population according to wealth inequality, there are people that are, you know, if we're talking about income one step away from kind of, that, if, if we're living paycheck to paycheck, yeah. but if you're living in a house that you're paying off or you have some other kind of means of a safety net, you're relatively better off than someone who is renting or is couch surfing you know and these are the things that I don't think politicians and the political class see they don't see what it's like day to day for families to live with now that, and with that insecurity right housing yep, yep. the thing that came to the fore in that ACOS report is the level to which owning a home protects you to some extent and Elizabeth was right before to say if you lose your job and you've got a mortgage you might mm. you might lose that house so you're yep. still working class but you're better off than somebody that's renting what Liz hit on there is the really thorny issue in our public debate for me which is we talk about income equality and it's wealth that makes the difference mm. it's the the capital that you own the assets that you own the things mm. you can fall back on that makes a difference to how you experience the world. And we do not tax wealth in Australia. Nope. We don't adequately measure it. We don't even talk about it. And that's why, you know, one of the in favor solutions of the, of the modern left for inequality is a universal basic income. And I have been 
shot down in flames for saying I don't support that. And the reason I don't support it is because it does nothing about the distribution of wealth. It actually just takes some money from wealthy people, puts it in the pockets of people without any wealth and allows them to keep buying stuff in a system that funnels the money up to back up to the top. What we actually need to disrupt is the concentration of wealth that has gone so far to the top 1% to 5% over recent decades that we now saw, even in Australia, that we think is egalitarian, the ACOS report showed that the top 10% of wealthy people in this country own, on the top 20%, own more assets than the rest of us put together. And the top 10% own half. The top 20% own over 3 million per person, 90 times below the lowest 20% whose wealth assets are $36,000. And that is basically what they have in super, which they can't access in a crisis anyway. And I think that's what makes the way people experience a crisis quite different. Never mind the fact that even if they could access that and people have been able to access two lots of 10,000 from their super, the lifetime impacts of that are a real problem. I think though it's not about competing, but views of class. I think they're actually complementary. What Marx is talking about is how power is distributed in society and how people draw an income and that they are very different and exploitative relationships. That some people are actually using other people to make that make their money oh. and they have greater choice. Then we have those sociological differences. I remember at university in the 90s in the very early days of computers, they made us do this exercise about how would we make an inequality map of Melbourne's local government areas? And we had to pick categories from the census data to do that. And they're the ones you'd expect and that you would work with all the time. What's the percentage of people renting in this suburb? What are the percentage of people who have a university degree? What's the income of people in this suburb? Did their parents go to university? and collecting all of that in order really to make a class map map of Victoria. We have to use the stats we have. We're a bit rough and ready and sort of saying, well, this is the shape of it. But on the other hand, we know it when we see it, right? All you've got to do is drive around those suburbs of Melbourne and the differences between Sunshine and Elwood are there for everybody to see. And so in that sense, I think class is a really simple thing. People absolutely know it when they see it. And they know that the social capital, the ability to Mm. navigate government policies and to navigate job interviews and to know how to dress the right way for a job interview, these things, it just come naturally because people in well-off families are trained in certain ways. And it's a real struggle. If you're locked out of those kinds of either education experiences, the kind of socialisation that makes you get ahead, There's not even a way to kind of measure that social capital. But again, you know it when you see it. Really pertinently, if you were to take that map of Victoria's class and overlay a map of where the second stage of the COVID outbreak is, it's where people are in the in the most you know precarious situations so it's those suburbs that have got high levels of insecure work rental accommodation insecure housing crowded accommodation that's where 
the outbreak is occurring. And that's happened all over the world, that because people have less ability to insulate themselves, their jobs require them to go out to work, their accommodation means it's harder to socially distance, um, and they don't have, again, as Elizabeth said, the kind of social capital to be able to navigate what is an ever-changing situation. But it's also true that class map of Melbourne maps to every other health Yes, um, certainly does. It's the working class people who have diabetes, who have the heart disease, who who don't do as well with cancer. And that is about what kind of poverty and food their parents and grandparents had, access to doctors, access to dentists. It's expensive to be poor in Australia. And the the neoliberal ideology tells us it's those people's fault. It's their fault that they're sick. It's their fault that they're overweight. It's their fault that they have these bad outcomes. And I think part of breaking through the way that we even hear what's happening with COVID is to actually say it's the circumstances of these migrant communities in precarious work that we have known about for decades. This is not an accident, right? And I think, you know, we've touched on this idea of access, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of the, that social capital grants us access or limits access. Mm -hmm. And so kind of brings up this idea that I like in terms of opportunity. And at the moment, what I really hate is this idea. If someone has a, a personal deficit, say for example, they're poor, they, maybe they're not having a go. That's what their barrier is. It's because they're not being granted equal opportunity or equitable opportunity to access things like services that are required, say, for example, health services, employment services, and education services to support and get them at the same level as someone who was perhaps born to a wealthier family and the the difficulty with class and income wealth or or the other measures of wealth is that the family the socioeconomic circumstances of your birth determines the trajectory of your life if you're born poor you will die poor and you will die earlier Mm -hmm. than someone that is born uh, of, of a higher social standing with greater access to opportunities and that is terrifying to me that I might bestow to my children by luck of the draw of the ovarian lottery, a life that is destined for pain. And I, I, that's what I fear, that we, we will keep making these same mistakes when it comes to class and to opportunity and access purely because we do not have the political power among the poor to agitate for change. Furious about that about what Liz has just very eloquently described, is that the social democratic policies of the mid 20th century were specifically aimed at addressing that, at improving social mobility, at saying that actually it shouldn't matter who your parents are, every child should be given the best start in life. And no country got those things perfectly right. But certainly my parents' experience being born in the Second World War in the north of England to very working class families who had worked in mills as far back as we know and lived in very poor housing uh, circumstances, they were supported with massive investment in public housing. They were put into council houses. They were given an education that was state funded and they were able to work their way out to a very nice middle class 
life for me within a generation. We have deliberately dismantled those things over the last 30 to 40 years. Neoliberalism has deliberately dismantled those things. And we've seen it most recently in this change to higher education policy that is making it impossible for working class kids, for kids from poor backgrounds to go to university and study humanities. The latest change is that if you fail a certain percentage of subjects in the first year, you lose your hex. The fact that working class kids are less likely to take on hex because of the fear of the debt in the first place. Mm. We have done so many things in the last three or four years that have deliberately dismantled that infrastructure that was put in place between the 1940s and the 1970s to try to lift social mobility and enable kids and young people to get the best start in life. And at the same time, we funneled more and more wealth to existing wealth holders and it has been quite deliberate and the failure of the left of social democratic parties here and around the world has been to fall into line with that and to not say actually this is an attack on the very reason our political movements got started in the first place it's you know if we're not going to stand up for that i don't know what social democratic parties around the world are for Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. You're with Communication Mixdown, and today I am exploring what class means in contemporary Australia with Liz Allen, Emma Dawson and Elizabeth Humphreys. How do you find the points of solidarity to bring these together? We can have a dialogue about the way forward, and that's broken down. Trade unions used to be the place where that dialogue could happen for all their problems. They don't have rose-coloured glasses about their past either. Working people have always been atomized individuals in a competitive society. It is not natural or automatic that people come together into trade unions. That, that's a political strategy of people who have decided to, instead of competing with the person next door for a job, to get together and improve the lot overall. And I think that has to be part whether it looks like the trade unions of yesterday or today, or whether it actually looks different in the future. Working people coming together to do that has to be part of what happens. And as much as there's been a collapse of organised labour in Australia and the US and the UK, actually there's been a real growth of labour struggle in China, in India, in other locations. So it's not unidirectional. And this is why it is a challenging thing, because we're not a monolith. You know, working people, Mm. as Elizabeth's just said, we've had to compete against one another for scarce resources throughout history. Mm. Whereas the capital class, they have a great deal of common interest in banding together and keeping the lower classes out of their space. One of the things that I'm working against every day is this idea that we can either talk about our class solidarity 
or our identity and this attack on identity mm -hmm. politics as though it's somehow a distraction from the main game. Mm -hmm. It's part of the main game. Mm -hmm. uh, people forget that actually that Martin Luther King's March on Washington was a march for jobs. And so we need to remember that, yes, we will have different intersectional experiences of disadvantage and of exclusion, and they will vary as to our race, our colour, our cultural beliefs, our religious beliefs, our gender, our sex, our sexuality. But at the core of it, those without power have nothing to offer other than their the power of their collective action and their ability to withhold that labour because it is labour that builds wealth. And it's a, a classic line that a former colleague of mine, Warwick Smith, used to quote all the time, which is when someone tells you they made their, their, they made their fortune through hard work, ask them whose. Um, <laughs> it is our work that builds wealth and profit. And if we collectively say, well, I'm not going to put up with these standards of living anymore, we are going to mobilise and collectivise and create the kinds of movements that were created through the labour union movements back in the late 1800s. They may look different, as Elizabeth said, they may form over social media, they may form in different ways. But to remember that it's about disrupting the power imbalance more so than anything else, that we have more in common, those of us that don't have the power of capital. We have to allow that difference to come yeah. to the front, right? I think the risk is to think that we need to have one message and that we need to be able to organise in a way that... Erases the difference. Yeah, that mm. erases the difference. But if the last decade and the opening up of discussion on race relations in Australia has shown us anything, is that it's only through dealing with those difficult intersections, including how they play out in the labour market and the working class, that's going to allow everybody to go forward. And that means giving greater space and voice to people who've even been excluded from the labour movement in lots of ways itself. But these things are a process. I hate to go back to Marx, but he did <laughs> say that there were these ingrained tensions in capitalist society that cannot be gotten around. These tensions are going to be with us, and that's why it's always a struggle. I despair that difference always has to end up being hierarchical. That's how mm. it always ends up seeming. Like as soon as there's difference, they, they this kind of reach for some sort of hierarchy. Who's on the top? Like which is the the best <laughs> of it, the differences? Rise into that idea that the powerful want us to have that somehow I'm better off focusing on my oh I'm better than her or him mm. because X Y Z, um, and positioning ourselves in a hierarchical way rather than recognizing that individual experiences of, of oppression are exactly that and they they are formed along different identities and all of those identities are a valid way of experiencing oppression. The point is to fight the oppression. I support what both Elizabeth and Emma have said is that we don't want to seek consensus or nor should we but we need to get angry we need to get angry not just for ourselves but for the future generations and for those that don't necessarily have the social capital to be able to voice their concerns and they're the ones of course that have the most to benefit from any kind of major reform. So get angry, demand that we have transparency and more scrutiny within our political elite and within our parliamentary processes. I think what, what's so heartening for me at the moment is 
despite how shockingly bad COVID has been, it has provided a bit of a disruptive mechanism that allows us to take stock and reevaluate where we were headed and where we want to be headed. And I think that now's the time, get angry and demand. We don't have to be the same or have consensus, but we need to have a, a belief that we can be better than what we what we're on where we're headed or, or how we're, we're going about it. That's very true, Liz. Like one thing that Michael Quinlan says about workplace disasters is that, you know, 35 workers died when the Westgate collapsed, but many more died in single accidents in construction in that year. But the disaster itself brings into focus what the real problems are and what potentially we can do about it. And I think in that way, we have to seize the opportunity of COVID in order to say, look look what it reveals, right? And we can all see what it reveals. That class map of Melbourne and the spread of the virus is there on the front page of a major daily newspaper in Melbourne. It's about, yes, us getting angry But also prosecuting a way forward and having a dialogue about the way forward. And leadership is a dialogue, right? It's dialogical. We need to put in the hard work to to build that social movement here that can really win a different sort of society. Before COVID happened, there was this worldwide sort of swell of protests. There was this kind of momentum building around protest internationally and that COVID has sort of of disrupted that. it's disrupted it, but it's not going away. You're seeing that the, the Black Lives Matter um, protests in America are not are not being suppressed by COVID. So it has exposed absolutely the things that are, have been existing in our society for a long time. And one of the really great examples that builds on that and the, of what Liz was saying is, you know, feminism. Um, white feminism is so criticised rightly because it seems to have forgotten about everything but um, those very powerful white voices, the lean-in movement, the getting... Women on boards. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, you know, they're forgetting um, entirely. I think that equality is, is having more women in the boardrooms of, of corporate Australia. No, equality is when we start recognising that the work done by aged care workers and childcare workers who are predominantly women from migrant backgrounds with insecure work is valuable work and should be paid and rewarded accordingly so if we if you know if as movements we go well i've got mine so i'm just going to focus on my own little piece of intersectional equality then that's not real equality and that's not really fighting for justice no we'll we'll just end up in the same place because those criticisms of middle class white feminist organizing have been made by people of color internationally for decades and they haven't been heard by the women who lead those organisations. It's more than having gender balance on a panel, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. about actually seeing your struggle is bound up with the struggle of other people and that a true sort of different society can only be built in that way together. That was Elizabeth Humphreys, Emma Dawson and Liz Allen talking to me about the definitions and functions of socioeconomic classes in Australia and how we might change how things stand. That's all we have time for this evening, sadly. Communication Mixdown is back at 6pm next Monday and I'll be back in three weeks' time. We're going out tonight with a song that makes explicit what the conversation you just heard intimated, subtly and perhaps not so subtly. This is Tracy Chapman with Talking About a Revolution.
Don't you know We're talking about a revolution Sounds Don't you know We're talking about a revolution Sounds like a whisper While they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know Talking about a revolution Sounds Poor people gonna rise up And get their share Poor people gonna rise up And take what's there Talking about a revolution, oh no. Talking about a revolution. 